I saw my life branching out before me like the green fig tree in the story. From the tip of every branch, like a fat purple fig, a wonderful future beckoned and winked. One fig was a husband, a happy home, and children, and another fig was a famous poet, and another fig was a brilliant professor, and another fig was E.G., the amazing editor, and another fig was Europe and Africa and South America, and another fig was Constantine and Socrates and Attila and a pack of other lovers with queer names and offbeat professions, and another fig was an Olympic lady crew champion, and beyond and above these figs were many more figs I couldn't quite make out. I saw myself sitting in the crotch of this fig tree, starving to death, just because I couldn't make up my mind which of the figs I would choose. I wanted each and every one of them, but choosing one meant losing all the rest, and as I sat there, unable to decide, the figs began to wrinkle and go black, and one by one, they plopped to the ground at my feet. Sylvia Plath, The Bell Jar He's kind of crazy, she's a little insane. Keeping energy really messes with his brain. One is the forest, the other's husband is dead. That's why it's so messed up in the head. It's a Silver Linings Playcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Silver Linings Playcast. I'm your host, Jamie Ward. I believe this is our ninth episode which is pretty amazing that means if we've been doing one a week and we've been doing more than one a week when i first started because i was very excited we were probably doing two a week um so (laughs) uh that means we've been doing this approximately for two months now which is about three months longer than we should have been anyway let's get to it we've got a lot going on this episode Uh, it was my intent to talk about the book the bell jar and part of that comes from the fact that in the book, The Silver Linings Playbook, The Bell Jar by Sylvia Plath is the book that Pat is reading, uh, which is replaced by A Farewell to Arms by Ernest Hemingway in the film version. We've talked about that, and I wanted to go into why I thought that change was, if it was an appropriate change, if it was good, better, if one is more... Uh, I think they both serve a purpose. But anyway, let's... Uh, one of the reasons that I was even thinking about this specifically, my friend sent me a really cool list. It was uh, an an internet list that somebody compiled from uh, the books that they had uh, um, identified from the book and the movie that were on Pat's ex-wife Nikki's summer reading list. That's one of the the plot devices, uh, not really plot device that's overstating it but one one of the things that happens in the movie that pat is doing is he's trying to read all of the books that nikki who is a high school teacher has assigned to her class to read over the summer so because he thinks that's going to help him understand her better and win her back and and there's no uh, explicit list given per se about what those books are, but we can get some different clues looking. He's carrying a stack of books in the film. He's reading several different books in the book. So these are the books that have been compiled by a bunch of fans from the internet that are the minimum of the books that were on Nikki's reading list. And it's, you're going to hear a lot of classics that, you know, it, it, uh, it seems pretty reasonable. This seems like what you might be asked to read during a summer in high school. So let's get to it. I think there's seven of these on here. There's The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald, A Farewell to Arms by Ernest Hemingway, The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne, The Bell Jar by Sylvia Plath, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn by Mark Twain, The Catcher in the Rye by J.D. Salinger. And the list has another book. I'm not, I don't think... That this is actually a book from her summer reading list. It just got mixed in because it's maybe a book that is referenced in the book, and that's Sky Watcher's Cloud Chart. It's a flip chart, and it's by the Nature Company. And I, uh, cloud watching is something that happens in the book, and it's uh, it's a fun little device that does come up several times. And it has some meaning, but it, that doesn't make it into the movie. And I also, so I also think that they just mistakenly were, were thinking any book that appears in the book 
should go on the list, even though the, the list is specifically supposed to be Nikki's summer reading list. Whether this is the actual list or not, that is debatable. I would love to hear what you guys think might be on that summer reading list or if you have evidence of anything else that was missed by these readers, watchers, and observers. Because some of these books are banned in different school systems too. So I think this should have been cross-checked. I did not do enough research, but I, we've done a lot of research on some other things, so we're going to get to that. But uh, if this if this story takes place in up in the, the Northeast, let's say in, in Pittsburgh, in the school system, maybe I should go back and actually just look up the, the reading lists for different schools in the area to see what was on those summer reading lists. But it's, it's a good start. I'm making an effort to read all these books so that I can better understand the movie and uh, Pat's ex-wife and women. <laughs> Or, or just humanity. Also, I just, I've, I've really developed a love of books and reading over the last couple months, which is something that I have not, I've always loved books. I've bought way too many books over my lifetime for somebody that has barely read any of them. In fact, organically, the only book I had ever read on here was actually The Great Gatsby. And it's weird to call The Great Gatsby one of my favorite books. I feel like it's really not even fair to give the title of favorite book to a book by someone that being me who has not read that many books in life. Of course, if I read a book and it's one of the great American novels, it will probably be one of the best books. Anyway, yeah, that's the only one that I had so far read uh, from this list right now. I have since read The Bell Jar by Sylvia Plath, and I am working on... A Farewell to Arms by Ernest Hemingway. So this episode, we were are really intending to get into discussing The Bell Jar, which is not something that I ever read in little school. But And I, and I don't even remember it being a sign. There was pl- it, it is sort of a controversial book. It has been on different band lists for various reasons in different school systems and stuff. But I think it's, it's an excellent book. The... The intro uh, open quote was from the bell jar, and it, it's one of the most famous uh, sort of quotes from it. It shows uh, Sylvia Plath talking about a fig tree, and she, she was so great. She was a poet primarily. The, uh, the bell jar, everybody probably knows this because everybody knows more about books than I do, and if you were awake in school, probably learned this, but Sylvia Plath was primarily a poet. The Bell Jar was actually the only novel that she completed in in her uh, tragically short life. But it is so good. And you can see her background uh, in what made her a good poet from the quote where she's talking about a fig tree and each of the figs represents sort of a different path in life, like a different... And she's sitting there trying to figure out which one she wants because they all look so good. But that indecisivity uh, gives the fruit time to wither and rot and fall. And then she fears that she will lose all her opportunities. And it is dark and tragic and real, honest, beautiful, and amazing. The imagery is fantastic. And so we are going to have a great time discussing that book and how it relates to Pat Peoples' character from the book, Pat Peoples, uh, like you guys probably remember, uh, Pat Solitano from the movie, but Pat Peoples in the book. And you can go back and listen to the episode. It's all about the differences between the book and the movie. Right now, we are going to get into a little I want to I want to set the tone before we get into the book so far about something that just interested me I did some uh, research on different writing things because I'm transitioning to becoming a writer myself I've been writing some short stories some poetry uh, I've got a couple novel concepts I've already finished a bunch of screenplays and teleplays working on those things too but 
But that's my training. My So my training, I have not read a lot of books in my life, but I've read a lot of screenplays. I went to a film school to be a screenwriter, and I love screenplays. I love movies. I've become very interested of late the difference between novels or books, just regular written fiction literature and screenplays. I'm very familiar with screenplays. I feel like I could talk about them very competently. I continue to do a lot of research, listen to different people's talks and panels on screenplays. I am pretty new to the world of just uh, literary fiction, books, stories. Like I said, I have not read very many books in my life, and almost all the ones I did were nonfiction. So this is a new world to me. And I really like it. It is fantastic. I'll tell you one of the best things I I uh, have just absolutely developed the biggest artist crush on Neil Gaiman. I watched his master class, which is about the best thing I have ever seen. I, I was watching him because I have so many friends that have recommended him as an interesting person and all of his stuff as really great uh, fiction fantasy, mythology, and so I was watching the the masterclass. I picked it because I was interested in the information. His, his actual instruction was one of the best things I've ever heard. He understands story so well that even in explaining how to write stories, his performance of his his information, his lecture was more uh, poetic and and just uh, sounded like a better presentation of a story than most people's story stories. And that was just instruction. So one of the things I was interested in that I wanted to to sort of break down a little bit, and this is we're, this is going to be like a English 101 class. Because I was very fascinated when I read the book, The Silver Linings Playbook, that it was written in first person. I was not expecting that. And I I think that was one of the most fun differences between the book and the film. That almost every film is pretty much a third person movie. And so a first person novel gave us an opportunity to really understand Pat's character far more in depth and personal and and relatable. So it, it's a really good background to sort of give some context to the film and the story of Silver Linings Playbook, the movie. Because I think I think uh, you can pretty much consider a book canon when you're concerned with uh, an adapted screenplay or no. I don't know. Actually, that's sort of, I, I, I was just sort of saying that that is probably worthy of a future discussion. So we will have that. So let's make sure everybody is on the same page when we're talking about narrative points of view. I got this from YouTube. This was from a, a channel, uh, YouTube author, Mr. Santo 411 really could have done it anywhere. This is actually probably stuff I should have just known from school, but I wanted to, to look it up to make sure I was getting as detailed and uh, accurate information as I could right before. So let's go into narrative points of view that a story can be told from. Now, the main two to the point where it's almost all that's brought up is first and third person. There is technically a second person, but it is very rarely used, and even when it is it is very hard to do well. There is basically five major types of perspective for which a story is told from the two different uh, points of view or POVs. All right, so we have first person, reliable narrator, and unreliable narrator. Now, first person is when it's told from the perspective of of a character from the story, right? The Silver Linings Playbook is narrated by Pat Peoples, like he is telling the story 
to you. So you get inside his head, you know what's going on, everything takes place through his eyes. Now the breakdown, and this this is the new part that I did not know or remember from little school, but when you start studying authors and writers a lot more, they break it down even further. So you have first person reliable and first person unreliable. And it's exactly what it sounds like. A first person reliable narrator uh, point of view is basically when you can trust the the story is being told, the, the facts that are being presented from that first person perspective are true. And then unreliable perspective is basically there that what is literally being said might not be able to be assumed as fact. Now, an example of a reliable narrator would be from the book Great Expectations by Charles Dickens, The Adventurers of Huckleberry Finn by Mark Twain. Those both have characters that are narrating the story uh, and what they say can basically, that's what's happening in the book. So you really don't need to imagine when they say they do something or see something, that is in fact what's happening, and the author's not really trying to write in a question of of making the reader assume something else is or or infer that that something is going on that's that's not. It does not mean that everything they say literally happens, but it's just the author is not using that perspective. As a, as a primary means to sort of convey the things they want or tell their story. Actually, I see Adventures of Huckleberry Finn as an example of reliable, first-person reliable narrator point of view. I f- That could actually be wrong, and I think that will come up a little later when we break down the different types of unreliable narrators because I found that to be an extremely interesting topic. So we'll break that down in a couple minutes. But, okay, and uh, so what's another example of unreliable, un, <laughs> I can't even talk, uh, unreliable. Uh, Nick Carraway from The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald. Again, all these books are going to show up uh, many, many times because they're classic books. They're classic books for a reason, and so they're great examples that uh, many, more, m- more people are more likely to understand or be familiar with, too, if you are not good readers, readers, especially like I am. One of the interesting things about first-person perspective is that I think there's sort of a general assumption from the uninitiated or very, very casual readers like myself that that first person, oh, well, the the story's uh, taking place inside the main character's head. That's not necessarily true. The main character of the story does not have to be the narrator of the, the story in a first-person perspective. In fact, Nick Carraway from The Great Gatsby is really a, a side character in, in the story, but, I mean, it just, like, it, it becomes him, it's, you know, but the story is about Jay Gatsby. Another example of this given was Sherlock Holmes stories because they're all told from Watson's perspective, even though they are completely about Sherlock Holmes. So again, the narrator does not have to be first person. I'm sorry if this is a little boring for people that already know all this stuff, but come on. If, if you're that educated or smart, you're probably not listening to my podcast or even friends or would have found any of this. Like I'm, I'm not typically, I, now I don't want to say that I have some very smart friend. In fact, I, my friends are the smartest. I don't know what I'm talking about. I am being ridiculous and uh, already compromising my own arguments. So now let's just scrap all that, but let's move on to third person perspective. Third person is what I think we're more used to generally when, I know I think of a a fiction story and that's where the narrator is, is telling about the people, but we're not in the perspective of an individual character. Now there's a three breakdowns too of what different authors consider perspectives within the third person perspective. And those are omniscient, limited and objective, right? 
And the, the, the first one, third person omniscient, is told from outside of the characters, but the reader is given information about absol- absolutely everything. You can still be told about what the character is thinking. You can still be told what all the characters are thinking. You can be told about the past, present, or future. The narrator is omniscient, all-knowing, and has the ability to give you, the reader, any of that information which helps move the story along from the author. The third person limited. That is where uh, the, the perspective is still outside again, but the story will still will sort of be told from a, a specific character's perspective too. So now we might be given the thoughts of the protagonist or whoever we are sort of following as the main person in the story, but we might not be able to know what other characters are thinking. We're, we're definitely going to be limited. So there is a, a great scope of information and perspective given, but not as much, not as limitless as omniscient because it's limited. It's literally the title. An example of this is The Giver by Lewis Lowry, another book that shows up on a lot of reading lists, I guess, but maybe not high school. I don't know. I've seen the cover. I know it's like a award winner for kids' school books. Never read it. Don't know anything about it. I know there was a movie about it, and I think I think Taylor Swift was even in it or did the music for it or something. You'd think I would know that kind of thing. I I don't. Not familiar with it. That's a that's a guess. Okay. And the Harry Potter series by J.K. Rowling. That is limited. Have not read any of these either, but I'm guessing that the stories are sort of told from Harry Potter's, uh, I guess, not his perspective, but maybe think of it as like right over his shoulder and then you can see all the characters. One of the things about limited versus omniscient is that uh, the limited, uh, the, the limitations are often used so that you can add more elements of surprise in the storytelling, in the narrative part. In the omniscient, the the story is more focusing on like the relationships of everybody. That's why, oh, I forgot to give the examples of Omniscient. Lord of the Flies by William Golding and Little Women by Louisa May Alcott. I have not read either of those books. That's Just assume I have not read any of the books that we're going to be talking about from this point on. right? But I do know Lord of the Flies is, is a book about uh, a bunch of boys that are stranded on an island. And Little Women. I did I did see the movie, the most recent one. I guess there's several versions of it. But I know Little Women was was a, a story about four different women. And it's a fantastic movie. I don't remember if I've sung the praises of, of Greta Gerwig on this podcast before. But if I haven't, deserves a completely one of the best movies I saw last year, if not in a long time, just for simply... Uh, screenwriting, storytelling, the the film was perfect in a billion ways too. And you know it was perfect because that's not the kind of movie I would typically watch. But I got so excited when I heard it was just a really inventive reimagining of the story and the screenplay was really good. And I really like some of the other films that Greta Gerwig has done. Uh, Lady Bird was a fantastic one that I think was the first time I became aware of Greta. Um, And then uh, Frances Ha, which she co-wrote with, I'm blanking on who her co-writer was, but then she also starred in that movie. And that was a great, great movie. I'm going to say it's good. It was very good. It's very enjoyable. It's not as just overall as amazing as Lady Bird and Little Women, but it's also a lot older too. I think it's like six or seven years earlier. So it's one of the, it, it, so it's one of those great things. It's fantastic, but just Francis Ha. It's sort of you watch that and you're like, oh, this person is going to be so so good. This is just an earlier outing. I don't want to sound so critical about all this stuff because she's probably one of the best screenwriters going right now, and I know one. So I just it's all it's all good. 
I'm just comparing good stuff to great stuff by very smart people. Okay. Now the third perspective of third person is objective. And some examples are Hills Like White Elephants by Ernest Hemingway and The Rise of Pancho Villa by John Reed. Third person is where you don't get inside the heads of any of the characters. You you feel like the, the narrator is not really uh, opinionated from their perspective. They're not, they're just, they're telling the events. It's like reporting, I guess. And I don't mean to make that sound like it's not really interesting or it's just that's the author perspective that's given written that it's much harder to find examples of third person objective perspective from writing. I would be very interested to know if any of y'all have favorite third person objective perspective novels. It definitely is a, um, just, I did when I did a quick Google search, there's not, there's, there's literally other people on the internet asking what is an example of third person objective books. So it's definitely one of the rarer ones. And then let's go to the other, the second person perspective, which is probably the rarest because it's very hard to do. And just, it doesn't lend itself to writing most of the time. So very few people do it and there's not many examples. And that is you, the reader, we, the reader are the main character. The only example I got after doing very, very little research, but basically I think it might've been from the YouTube video too, is Bright Lights, Big City by Jay McInerney. Uh, Another example, though, would be all of the choose-your-own-adventure books because they're all written like, you're doing this, you're doing that. One of the the big complaints about, or the difficulties about second person is authors are trying to get you to forget that you're reading a book. One of the the differences between a really well-written book and just a fine book, something that does the job, is you're often reminded by a not-quite-as-amazing author that you're reading a book. And I think that's why reading becomes uh, boring or foreboding to some people like me. I, I've i actually been doing a way better job reading recently because I've been reading some of these greatest novels ever written. And I think that's what it takes. If you're exposed to sort of not as good writing early on. This is the kind of books that, that keep reminding you, Hey, you're doing a chore right now. If, if the author is not able to, to hide the different things they're doing and the tools they're using, you become very aware of just literally the menial task of reading a book. It, it hinders your ability to sort of imagine the story and follow the characters and keep track of things and second person perspective is very dangerous for this because if you're going to write and say things like you went to the bank, you were feeling this, you were that one, you're going to have to do a lot of description to let the reader know what the, anything about the character, because you are the character and the whole time you're reading, you're going to be thinking, I know me. Why is this? character in this book doing this weird thing doing this other thing yeah i'm sure you understand the problem with it so that's the that's the different the three points of view the five different perspectives that books are written in so let's get to the topic of the week the bell jar it's a 1963 novel it was by Sylvia Plath, and it was published under the pseudonym uh, that she was going by, Victoria Lucas. And there's a lot of interesting sort of information about her struggle to get it actually published. And people thought that she went to several publishers with the manuscript, and they thought this is not going to be good. So many of these famous authors were not even appreciated fully in their time or the works that they are responsible for weren't necessarily lauded the way that they later became uh, because of, you know, would, would the bell jar be as famous a book 
if Sylvia Plath had not really just tragically ended her life a little bit after completing writing it. And, but I, you know, even as I say this, she was dealing with issues of, of the time of back, of back being in the late fifties, early sixties. She was writing what I, I think and others have sort of uh, alluded to. There's, there's themes of feminism. I, I would even hesitate to call it feminism because I don't, I don't think there it's, there's really like a political or even social intent behind the, the story. It's really just a very authentic, honest, fair. And I might, you know, brave might not be the best word I'm, I'm saying just because I don't, I don't feel like that is the intent of writing it. I think it was just sort of her, uh, the, um, the authenticity, authentic, authenticity of her experience, the reality of it. And the, the fact that she got to tell a story about being a young woman in the time and not buying into a lot of the social norms and conventions of the time and really wanted to be her own person and just really define who she was without buying into the all the pre-subscribed ideas of what a young woman's life should be at the time. And that was far more revolutionary than it, it should have had to have been at the time. Because it... Looking back at it now, if I if I read the story with no context, I'd be like, "Oh, okay, this is this is a well written story. This is interesting." But I did read the forwards to the book and different research and context for it. And when you start to understand that period in time, too, you're like, "Oh, this is something that was not as representative of other books that were being written or by authors that were able to talk about their experiences this way." in this time. And that's why a lot of the publishers that she took her manuscript to originally were like, eh, I don't think it's going to do so well, or maybe we're not going to handle this. I say that she ran into, um, there was some conflict with getting it actually published. However, she was a very accomplished author at the time. She had won, uh, different, poetry grants she actually was on a grant at the time to write this novel she was there it's a very interesting story about it i will go into that a little later i think if we have time but i want to bring up something that is super fascinating about the novel the bell jar and uh the the bell jar is in, in book genre referred to as something that I just discovered the term for called it's, it's spelled Roman a clef. And I believe it's pronounced Roma, a clay, Roma, a clay, which is a French term, which means novel with a key. And what that is, is a genre where there are real life events overlaid with a facade of fiction. Characters represent real people, and the key is the relationship between fiction and nonfiction. The metaphorical key may be produced separately, typically as an explicit guide to the text by the other, or implied through the use of epigrams, epigraphs, or other literary techniques. That's the Wikipedia definition of Roma Acle as a genre. And some of the main reasons this can be done is it can be done for the confidentiality. If any of the, uh, the author might not want to say it for their own liability uh, to keep different controversial. If you want to write about controversial topics and for some reason you're not in a position where you can write about those things, it's sort of like writing under a pen name too. So her pseudonym name, Victoria Lucas, that's, I think there's two different things going there. The, the pseudonym name, there's a whole bunch of different reasons why that 
could have been too. But then also writing in this uh, Roma Aclay um, genre too. I th- partially, I would guess that it gave her the artistic liberty to sort of write more freely drawing from her poetry background. Everything she wrote, even even things that, that weren't technically poems that were more like short fiction or something, still have this just fantastically beautiful and and uh, just... I don't want to use cartoony as a word because that I, I feel like doesn't hold the weight of what it deserves. It's hard for me to describe not being a good reader or author myself. I lack the vocabulary to fully describe what I'm feeling right now, or maybe, maybe that's my man problem too. I don't have the words to express what I'm feeling, so I get frustrated and I just say cartoony. <laughs> Who knows? It, I'm not here to talk about <laughs> my failings as a man. I'm here to discuss uh, books and movies. That might be why I'm drawn to Silver Linings Playbook 2, because it is a story about a man who is dealing with a lot of issues as a man and can't Pat definitely doesn't have the vocabulary to talk about how he feels. And so it causes him mental problems. I don't, I'm not comparing myself to the character any more beyond the fact I'm saying I like it. I like the movie and book because of that. The we're, we're hitting all around a, a target of what could be a whole different episode. So rain check on that conversation. All right. Some examples from the Roma Aclay genre, uh, which is used a lot. Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas by Hunter S. Thompson. On the Road by Jack Kerouac. The Sun Also Rises by Ernest Hemingway. Uh, again, names that are going to keep keep coming up. Fun little side note. Jack Kerouac, I know that name. I actually, I've started to listen to the audiobook of On the Road, and On the Road is a really, really super interesting uh, sort of, uh, it feels much more like a memoir, I guess, them saying right here that it is technically fiction, but one of those sort of fictional biographies. Um, I'm also, also there's there's a whole bunch of different, versions of on the road i'm absolutely fascinated by the story of jack kerouac and i know his name jack kerouac i've heard that said before i had not seen it written in uh until recently so what i'm bringing up is back when netflix sort of rebooted the show the gilmore girls one of gilmore girls is one of my Favorite guilty pleasure shows. Don't judge me. Um, it was uh, I like I like the writing, and also also the woman that produces it is just one of the most fantastic TV producers. She just has her own style and voice. Uh, the creator of the marvelous Mrs. Maisel, um, but just a very very fast talking, clever dialogue, quirky character. TV creator. So when Netflix rebooted the Gilmore Girls with four uh, feature-length movie, sort of, or was it three? Anyway, uh, I didn't watch all of them. I watched one of them. They weren't as good, so wasn't super into them. But um, what I did, I did a little just stupid little sketch of me acting out all the parts from the opening couple minutes of the pilot of Gilmore girls. And one of the lines that, uh, Lauren Graham's character, uh, Lorelai Gilmore says is something about, Oh, there's some guy in, in Luke's diner hitting on her and he's claiming to be from out of town. And she goes, you're a regular Jack Kerouac. 
I was reading the script and I didn't watch the actual clip. And so when I was reading it, I saw his name and I did not make the connection in my head. That's Jack Kerouac. It was one of my favorite sketches I ever really did, except for the extremely embarrassing line that I say, oh, wow, you're a regular Jack Corrick. I also didn't even get it from the context. I had not read On the Road at the time. Technically, I still have not read On the Road. I've started listening to it. But if anybody ever sees that, I I do know who Jack Kerouac is. I do know his name. I just did not do my diligence on that. On the Road is really interesting, too, because I was about to say there's multiple versions of it. There's... Uh, um, Multiple printings of it. Uh, the So the version that I am listening to is called On the Road, the Scroll Edition. And originally, he just attached a whole bunch of sheets of paper to each other lengthwise and wrote his entire manuscript on a giant scroll. And it was just one long run-on sentence. They since took what they assume is was the intended different um, formatting for it and made it into a regular book because it is a little harder to sort of just straight up read on the, the scroll edition. But I was just so fascinated by a person like that too. If that's the way they're going to write their, their thing, uh, that's what I wanted to absorb and, re- and, and get to know. So one day I'll make it through that. Uh, I need to get myself on the road, do some long drives for the opportunity to get myself listening to those audiobooks. But hopefully that will happen soon and we won't all be as landlocked. Anyway, okay. Uh, perspective first person is... Uh, oh, okay. I wanted to talk about... I brought all these things up because I wanted to discuss the narrative perspective of the bell jar and also the silver linings playbook and how they relate. I think that's actually sort of a beautiful uh, comparison between the two or when I say between the two, I, I, I think there's a similarity between them because they're both first person accounts by narrators that are crazy. And the author, Matthew Quick, it's it's clear that he is a good author. And what I mean by that is he's a guy that has read books. Now, anybody who knows me knows my absolute favorite quote from Silver Linings Playbook. It can still be a date if you order raisin bread. So I want to read something really briefly that is an excerpt from The Bell Jar. So this is the quote from The Bell Jar. The joke was that at my wedding, my grandfather would see I had all the caviar I could eat. It was a joke because I never intended to get married. And even if I did, my grandfather, I I don't know what the end of the quote is, unquote. But I... So I think this is a really interesting thing. This stuck out so much to me when I was reading the the bell jar. The joke was that at my wedding, my grandfather would see I had all the caviar I could eat. It was a joke because I never intended to get married. I might so I might be a person that's just drawn to food references in books and movies, but the moment I read that. I highlighted it, I took a picture of it, and I thought that I love this woman, Sylvia Plath. One, structurally, that is a solid joke. Whether you think it is funny or not, it is uh, a classic formulaic bait-and-switch of saying, my my grandfather was going to get me all the caviar at the wedding. I wouldn't want that to get married. Right, because you're setting up the expectation you take something like caviar that you think is going to be sort of like the controversial uh, point of that statement, and then you subvert expectations by saying that you wouldn't want the other part. I, you know, having caviar at my wedding, I'm not getting married, takes that, and that, like, one, 
I do think that's hilarious. That is a hilarious statement. Uh, it is an adorable statement by a narrator that I absolutely love. I have to say, I was completely crushing on the character uh, of Sylvia Plath during this because she is such a um, smart and honest character. I'm, I'm calling it a character because we're talking about who, who, who she is from the narrated version of her story. But, but to just sort of like have that honesty of saying exactly what you mean and feel regardless of, of whether you think it's sort of the most uh, picturesque ideal. And I thought it was so adorable. There was sort of a childlike innocence to the honesty of thought. And that's probably kind of sad that if that you'd say that there's, there's like a childlike honesty to just saying how you feel. Why is it that adults that we, we buy so much into having to sort of conform to what society feels is right or, or important that it sounds weird and silly when we just literally say the things we feel. I am terrible at that. And terrible, I mean, I do it the wrong way, but I think it's the right way. And sometimes I literally say <laughs> what I'm feeling at the moment I feel it. And it is not always appropriate in social situations or stuff. Uh, also, uh, one of my favorite quotes from Silver Linings Playbook, when Tiffany says to Pat, you say more inappropriate things than appropriate things. He says what he he thinks and feels at the time. I guess we do have that going on together with the addition to that. We both lack the vocabulary, Pat and I to sometimes clearly state what we want, what we're feeling. So we will just say things. We make noise to express our feelings, but I wish, I wish I could express my feelings better. Uh, maybe that's why I started a whole podcast about this. So anyway, uh, the, the, uh, story of the bell jar, Esther Greenwood, uh, is she a reliable narrator or an unreliable narrator? I think so I've, I've done some research and I think technically it is considered an unreliable narrator, even though I feel like she is reliable because I get it. I believe the same with Pat Peoples. I think from a technical standpoint, because both of these characters are uh, quote unquote crazy. And I, I don't think um, something interesting is I think they both think they're crazy at points, which is a, a weird thing. Crazy people don't always think they're crazy. I'm also using crazy as a big blanket term. It's really not accurate, but it's sort of the, it's how I feel about the concept, uh, not necessarily the best way to illustrate it. But uh, from from a book perspective, from an authorly perspective, a lot of people consider if, if your narrator has mental health issues, that they will in fact be considered an unreliable narrator because it, it doesn't, if I was just defining it myself, I would feel like the reliability was based on the integrity of the narrator. Are they trying to lie to the audience, to the reader, or are they telling the truth as they see it? But we are trying to get sort of a more technical writer's perspective on this. So while I feel like they are reliable narrators, I believe that uh, Pat and Esther would both be considered unreliable narrators. I, and what I mean by that is I think if you were writing a paper for little school about the book, you should probably say unreliable narrator, even though I feel like she's very reliable. And what I mean by that, maybe that's because I love her too, which now makes me an unreliable narrator because love doesn't come from your head. Any, anyway, all right. <laughs> that, that is, uh, a, well, it's like the end of the book too. See, Pat doesn't know. He, the, the book, the silver linings playbook is sort of a transition of him thinking very much in his head at the beginning 
And then at the end, he starts thinking with his heart. And that's his character arc. That's his character progression and the storyline. It's not explicit. It, that, I mean, nobody would describe the story as it's the story of a man who learns to think with his heart, but starts to think with his head. Uh, I shouldn't have said that as, in such a passive way as I did. But in thematically, I think that's very much what it's, what it's about. The movie is completely about that way. I love the ending of the movie Silver Linings Playbook. He basically uh, realizes that he is in love with Tiffany. It was a realization that he actually made. Uh, he says the first time he ever saw her, but he didn't realize it at the time. And it took him the course of the movie for his head to catch up to where his heart was. And that's why he, like, one of the last things he says to her is he knew, he always knew, uh, he just didn't know. He's sorry it took him so long to catch up. And that's that's the real story of Silver Linings Playbook. And it's not the story of the bell jar. That is a completely different story, which we have not even gotten into the story of it. And we were probably going to run out of time, so I'm going to have to do a whole other episode on the actual story breaking down anything about the bell. How do people get this much information into podcasts? I feel like we've actually covered a lot of things and we've been talking a lot of things and I'm at 51 minutes and we have not even started. I've just, just a couple minutes ago brought up the character, uh, Esther. And we're, so there's no way that, that we're going to have time to get into let's, but let's get to some stuff that we can. I read a, another super fun article from, it's a, a 2017 article from The Guardian uh, written by Sarah Pinborough. And it is a top 10 list. I love lists, especially top 10 lists. And this is the top 10 list of unreliable narrators in books. So we're just going to go down this top 10 list real fast. Uh, number one. Gone Girl by Jillian Flynn. Number two, Fight Club by Chuck Palahniuk. I never know how to say his last name. Totally know who that guy is, but I never know how to pronounce it. I never remember. Number three, The Three by Sarah Lotz. Number four, The Wasp Factory by Ian Banks. Number five, Rebecca by Daphne de Maurier. Number six, Lolita by Vladimir Nabukov. Number seven, The Girl on the Train by Paula Hawkins. Number eight, The Telltale Heart by Edgar Allan Poe. Number nine, Notes on a Scandal by Zoe Heller. And number 10 on the list of top 10 unreliable narrators. Coming in at number 10, it is The Life of Pi. By Jan Martel, which interestingly enough, if you remember the life of Pi, I, I was uh, was nominated for Academy Award during the 85th annual Academy Awards for best adapted screenplay and several other characters uh, categories. I think uh, Ang Lee was was nominated for director it might have been in the running for overall i don't remember you have to go back and or not uh so there is the tie-in with that list for silver linings playbook the fact that neither of the two characters that i said just from the bell jar or the silver linings playbook show up on this list of top 10 unreliable narrators maybe does that mean they're not unreliable narrators i don't know so let's break this down even further because you know I love lists and you know I love breaking down things even further than they need to be. So there's another article which took this top 10 list and Amanda Patterson, the founder of Writer's Write, which is an author's blog, broke it down into nine types of unreliable narrators. Why we get a list of nine instead of the top 10 uh, that were above the top 10. That was just the list of who the different unreliable narrators were. Amanda Patterson broke down uh, nine different uh, types of characters or basically reasons why she feels like a narrator might be unreliable. And I thought this was a really interesting list. So we're going to go over this really quick. Number one 
uh, type of unreliable narrator is the child. The narrator may be a different age or have completely different life experiences from the older people in the story. They tell their version of a grown-up story through their limited understanding and experience. Examples, uh, Jack from The Room, Scout from To Kill a Mockingbird, Huckleberry Finn from The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. Also, you are only hearing me, but you can't see this on uh, Amanda Patterson's website, Writers Write, when she writes Huckleberry Finn from, everything's correct there, but then she writes The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. And the last Finn is written F-Y-N-N. That is an egregious misspelling a typo on a author's blog. So you know what? Maybe Amanda Patterson herself is an unreliable narrator. Okay, the next type of unreliable narrator. The outsider. The narrator might be prejudiced by race, class, politics, culture, or gender. If somebody is brought up in a certain way, their version of events will be skewed according to that culture. Examples. Alex from A Clockwork Orange. Nellie from Wuthering Heights. Miss De Winter from Rebecca. Invisible Man from Invisible Man. Okay. Type number three. The Crazy. The narrator may be going through a difficult adolescence on drugs or have an eating disorder. Leah from Winter Girls. Charlie from The Perks of Being a Wallflower. Holden Caulfield in Catcher in the Rye. Uh, the next type. I You know what? I did not read this list thoroughly before I read it. Her, she has three, four, and five being the crazy, the crazier, the craziest. This should have been the five types of unreliable narrators and she could have just put the unstable or something, but well, we'll go with it for a second. Uh, the narrator may suffer from hallucinate. Okay. Actually that's, I guess that makes sense. If you're going to break it down by, we could have no. So it should have been the five types of unreliable narrators with a six. That is three more. Is that eight instead of nine? This is not a math podcast. Okay. Number four, the crazier. The narrator may suffer from hallucinations or dementia or flashbacks caused by post-traumatic stress. Examples, Pat Peoples from the Silver Linings Playbook. There we go. Uh, Pi Patel in The Life of Pi. Chief Bromden from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Raul Duke from Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. And narrator from Candy. So that's... Huh, she identified Pat Peoples and Pi Patel. Those books came out at the same time. Or, I mean, I, actually, you know, I don't know if the books came out at the same time, but I'm I'm curious. Now I'm going to have to make a note to go back and look at sort of what was the timeline for those those books coming out. So how long did it take for those to get picked up and sort of uh, either turned into screenplays and then or movies? I'm, I'm very fascinated that those would appear on the same list of examples. Or maybe she just likes the, maybe it's the time frame. Who knows? We'll investigate. Okay, number five, the craziest. The narrator have a, might have a mental illness or personality disorder. Examples, the anonymous narrator in Fight Club, the unknown schoolgirl in The Moth Diaries, Barbara Covet in Notes on a Scandal, Humbert Humbert from Lolita, Patrick Bateman in American Psycho, John Nash in A Beautiful Mind, Barn. Uh, plenty of examples. All right, we got it. Uh, you. So that hmm, this is not my favorite blog ever because this could. I think these descriptions could have been a little thought out, better consolidated. I like. I didn't like it initially. What I said a second ago, but that she is breaking down different levels of crazy. I think there could be a. a a uh, more accurate, descriptive, and well-defined uh, delineation between these things. Because I do think there is a difference between somebody who is who is going through an issue, like it says, going through adolescence on drugs, having an eating disorder. That's That's three very specific examples, though, that you were giving to type number three, the crazy, when I feel like there's there's many other conditions 
that could influence your reliability as a narrator. Uh, I don't know. Maybe you hallucinate and see sketchy pencil people. Um, but you have hallucinations in the second one and, and suffering from post-traumatic stress. I'm not totally seeing that as, as a thing that has to be exclusive from the first level of crazy. And then in the third one, she says the narrator might have a mental illness or personality disorder. There's a lot of, of dangerous discrimination going on in this. So anyway, we're just, we're got, this is her list. I don't think it is. I mean, I, I like the concept overall of the nine types of unreliable narrators, but I think there's a little breakdown, like I've said in her, her distinction. It's a good intent, but not, as well executed at this particular category. Okay, number six, the innocent. The narrator may have grown up a lower than normal intelligence or an ability to deal with reality or a learning disability. Examples, Forrest from Forrest Gump, Edward Bloom and Big Fish, Christopher Boone from The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime, Bartholomew Neal in The Good Luck of Right Now. Okay, that's fair. Uh, number seven, the criminal. The narrator may be lying to save himself, trying to pers- to be uh, to trying to be persuade you that is this an author's blog? I I don't. Mi- <laughs> That's not fair of me. I'm not that good a writer myself. So. But he's done no wrong or attempting to blame one of the other characters out of revenge. Example, Nick and Amy from Gone Girl, John Dowell in The Good Soldier, Kaiser Soze from The Usual Suspects. Also, uh, too many examples in this one. Uh, do three examples. Do do one, two, or three examples and then keep it uniform for the rest. Uh, just if you're making blogs and lists. Come on. From a list expert, uniformity in lists helps with lists. Helps people. Okay. Number eight. The ghost. The narrator may be otherworldly. Examples. Dr. Malcolm Crow in The Sixth Sense. Jacobach Botch from Mr. B. Gone, gone Screw Tape from the Screw Tape Letters. The ghost in The Turn of the Screw. Lucifer and I, Lucifer. I think that is fair. Uh, the willful liar. This is number nine. The willful liar. The narrator is just messing with the reader. This is the least successful type of unreliable narrator and is often the equivalent of someone waking up and declaring it was all a dream. Examples, Pandora in Big Brother, Briani, Talis in Atonement. Oh, so now you only have two examples. Okay. Um, The willful liar, just making stuff up on the spot. I think sort of like, I don't know, maybe this list was made up. Okay, well, I think I think this ended up being a pretty in-depth talk about points of view and perspective, which I still want to tie into Silver Linings Playbook, but we are over the hour mark, and so I think we should probably wrap this up a little bit. Uh, we had so much to get to. So we will definitely... We will place a metaphorical bookmark in this conversation and we will be coming back to it in the future uh, because there is a lot of fun and interesting things to get into, but I don't want to go on forever. And I know I've probably already lost people's interest in uh, this in-depth discussion on POVs because that has so little to do with what you probably tuned in to listen to, which was me talking about the Silver Linings Playbook and things that help you better understand and appreciate the Silver Linings Playbook. And we didn't even get any closer to to there. If you guys have any good examples of POV... What is that noise? I don't recognize it. I have no idea where that's from. Uh, So, anyway. Yep. Um... Also, I'm just going to use my other last sound effect because I forgot to tie it into this episode. Hi, this is Nikki. Leave a message. That is not Pat's ex-wife. That is Nikki from the movie Swingers. John Favreau is calling her, and he keeps getting the message. Hi, this is Nikki. Leave a message. Like, Hi, Nikki. This is Mike. We met the other day, and... Uh, Hi, this is Nikki. Leave a message. That heavy breathing on it. Like, I'm probably heavy breathing on my podcast, too. Uh, 
That's this is me. <sighs> That's me heavy breathing, but the what you hear in the sound effect. Hi, this is Nikki. Leave a message. That actually sounds like an inhale. That is John Favreau. Uh, inhaling, sort of sucking in his breath as he is on the phone. Okay, well, that's, that's always a good indicator that the episode is uh, is up when we get this off topic. But anyway, this was a lot of fun. We're going to have a great conversation next week. I know we got a couple of special guests that we are uh, trying to set up interviews with. I'm actually going to be on a really interesting radio show tomorrow I'm super excited about, and I will give you guys more information about where you can hear that. So thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Silver Lining Playcast. As far as I know, it is the only podcast that is solely devoted to Silver Linings Playbook, the movie, and the Silver Linings Playbook, the book. Um, We will see you guys down the road and excelsior. He's kind of crazy. She's a little insane. Keeping energy really messes with his brain. One is the forest. The other's husband is dead. That's why it's so messed up in the head. It's a silver linings play cast. Good oh, yeah. night, everybody.